Thank you for joining this episode of Chinuch Today. I've been quite conflicted about sharing it, as there is so much pain and suffering going on for our people today in Eretz Yisrael. We are now in day five of this horrible, horrible time for the people of Eretz Yisrael and Jews all over the world, with the level of suffering being so acute. But I must say that those of us in Chinuch are not bystanders. We are active participants in the great struggle of Tov over Ra, of bringing Hashem's Kedusha to this world. We know that the role that those who learn Torah and teach Torah play in this effort is quite significant. And because of that mission, because of that focus of Chinuch today, which is to be Mechazik Limad HaTorah, to be Mechazik the learning of Torah for Jewish children, I feel that it is appropriate to release this episode. And how appropriate it is that this episode is taking on Harbatzas HaTorah, the spreading of Torah in a way that you have not heard about anywhere else. As you will hear in this episode, the goal of today's guest is to be Marbitz Torah in one of the widest efforts to reach so many Jews and to bring so much Kavit Shemayim. So even though we sometimes feel that our ability to impact the pain that's going on in Eretz Yisrael is so limited, I say to those in Chinuch, remember that our role is in fact paramount, that we must continue to teach with resolve and do our best to continue to be Marbet's Torah and that way bring the Tov, the Kedusha, the Shechina of Hashem to this world, and ultimately that is what will overcome our enemy. Not only tanks and guns and troops, but additionally, and perhaps even in a paramount way, the learning of Torah that we do wherever it is, whether it be in Eretz Yisrael, whether it be in Beis Medrash, or even in the younger grades across this country, plays such a critical role. So I ask you to join us in today's episode, and think about how we could continue to be Marbitz Torah and be Mechazek one another. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Chinuch Today. I am your host, Rabbi Yerach Miel Garfield. Please join me as we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. This is Yerachmiel Garfield, and today I am going to introduce you to an amazing person with a very, very important message to all of us. You know, when I started this podcast, I knew that I would be, I knew that I'd be interacting with all different people and ideas that I otherwise wouldn't have connected to. But this has been even more amazing than I anticipated. And today's episode is such a good example of that. Holly Cohen raises a question that I've never heard questioned. I've never heard the issue raised. And I certainly have not met anyone who is trying to address it in such an ingenuitive way. And that is, she asks, there are 1.6 million Jewish children in America. Point three. That's 300,000 are in our schools. What are we doing for the 1.3 million Jewish children who are not in our day schools? As Jewish school leaders, as people interested in a podcast like Chinuch Today, thinking about Chinuch Today, in what way are we relating to this large majority of Jewish children who do not get any Chinuch Today? And instead of just thinking small of maybe opening one school with that aim, she has developed a network of schools, over 10 schools, that exist all over the country and have the ability to open in more places to really address and answer this question. This is a great example of how this podcast has opened my mind to think broader, to worry about greater issues, and to think about the greater Klal Yisrael in a way that I haven't. It's also given me a lot to think about in terms of different models of scaling schools and some of the things that could be done by grouping schools together, which is what essentially she's doing through her network. And simply the idea 
of thinking outside the box, of rethinking, of approaching old problems with new mindsets and not being scared of the magnitude of potential problems, which has really been Holly's whole professional life in education, has been thinking about what are the biggest problems and what are the most creative ways we could address it. So I hope that you too, by coming on this journey of meeting Holly Cohen and hearing about the Tumim Academy, you also will not only be inspired by the specific task on her agenda, which is addressing the 1.3 million children and this network, but use it as an opportunity to think big about other areas of Jewish education, to sort of clear the board and say, what are the biggest fish? What are the biggest issues? And how could we come at it anew and not shy away from those big issues, but rather attempt to tackle them? So I'm so happy to present Holly Cohen today in our episode of Chinuch Today, and I'm looking forward to hearing your reaction to her ideas and energy. Welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. We are excited to have Holly Cohen here, who is the CEO of Tumim Academy. Welcome, Holly. Hi, thank you for having me. So where are you currently located? Where do you live, Holly? I live in Marion Station, Pennsylvania, suburb nice. of Philadelphia. And this is, I actually didn't grow up in Lower Marion. I actually grew up on the other side of town in Elkins Park, but I'm a fourth or fifth generation Philadelphian. Wow. So I also, although don't live in Philadelphia, my great grandparents came to Philadelphia from Europe. So I also have deep, deep roots in Philadelphia. And you are the CEO of Tumim Academy. Can you just give us like two sentences? about what Tumim Academy basically is for those who aren't familiar with it. And then we'll go back and, you know, get to it as chronologically. Sure. Tumim Academy is a network of new Jewish elementary schools across North America um, with, with that, that we are building with the goal of providing an opportunity for Jewish elementary education for all the children that wouldn't ordinarily find themselves or be seeking Jewish day school education. There are 1.6 million, approximately 1.6 million Jewish children in North America. And of those 1.6 million, about 292,000 go to Jewish day school. Wow. So that leaves about 1.3 million who are not in that sort of like all day formal Jewish Jewish educational environment. And I think that, you know, it's so important that we as communities and as Jewish people support our existing Jewish day schools and promote our existing Jewish day schools. But, you know, at some point in that support and in that promotion of the ones that already exist, it's like we are somehow forgetting about those other 1.3 million children who are not like, you know, let's say in quotes, already in the system. And while I don't, I don't think there's, you know, it would be beneficial to anyone to take away anything that we do for the kids and for the system as it exists. I think that I had to sort of shift some paradigms in in my own mind and say, yeah, but oh my gosh, there's this whole other world out there of kids that are not being touched at like at all, or they are because, because there are synagogues and Hebrew schools and all different organizations, but like in a systemic way, what about those 1.3 million? Amazing. That's really amazing. That's special. Like as I'm hearing you talk, I'm trying to think when the last time I heard anyone even address the kids, not in Jewish day school, I read a lot of Jewish data school literature and listen to a lot of, you know, podcasts and a lot out there, but I can't think of a a time that that's even been mentioned. So that's really amazing right off the bat. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying is that it's almost like we've just become so short-sighted to think about the importance of the system that exists. And, and, and it is really important, but it's like something else got completely shut out with the, all that focus. Amazing. So. Okay, so we're going to come back to it. I want to hear about your vision and what you've done and the whole concept of a network of schools, which you just threw in there. But to me, that's like, whoa, a network. <laughs> I don't think we have a lot of networks of schools. I know there's a lot of economy of scale and a lot of ingenuity that you're involved in. But let's go back in the Holly Cohen story. So you grew up in Philadelphia. Now, you're not an educator per se in the sense that you're not in a classroom or you're a CEO. So 
Did you start out as an educator in a more formal uh, way or uh, how did your I, career evolve? I did go to Jewish day school myself. What was around back then? To local schools. Mm. I went to local, I did go to Barrick. Well, it was then Akiba. Akiba. And, oh, really? Uh, I went to Solomon Schechter and it's interesting. I lived in Elkins Park, which is a, a northern suburb of the city. And when I went to Solomon Schechter, now Perlman Jewish Day School, our school was located in the Hebrew school classroom wing of Mainline Reform Temple. So I went to Solomon Schechter Jewish Day School at Mainline Reform Temple. And um, and then I went to Kiba, now Barrick. And I also went to Camp Ramah as a young person. And um, I would say that like all of those things had just like a very deep impact on me. Meaning like I really got from a pretty young age how important it was that I was like I was privileged to be getting this education. And again, it was not perfect. I don't know if you recently saw my e-Jewish philanthropy opinion piece and there were some issues. But, you know, overall, like I said, I have a lot of Hakarat Tatov for that education that I got because it just like, like, I guess for many years of the life, you know, of my life, like. You do some stuff, you don't do some stuff, but it was all in there. You know, it was all in there and I had the knowledge and I had the Hebrew and I had the background and it was just, it was really important. Mm. And I also say, which I think is a little different in my story is that when I was eight, my parents made Aliyah in 1974, like shortly after the Yom Kippur War, my parents made Aliyah and we actually ended up staying in Israel for less than a year. It was a very difficult year for Aliyah because the country was like so devastated from the war. And most of the Olim who had the ability to go back to their country of origin actually went back in 1974. It was a, it was a difficult year. And I think when my, when we came back, my parents had thought to themselves, like, well, we have this whole Jewish identity thing handled because it's going to be Israeli. Like we're good, you know? And then we came back here to the States and our local rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Rosenberg from out of Jeshren said to my parents, no, no, no. Like you cannot put her back in public school. You have to put her in Jewish day school. And and so they did. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I was yeah. going to say, I'm sure your parents also played a big role in the family environment, not only the schools and camp. and. Yeah. And I grew up in a family where we had Shabbat dinner every Friday night with my aunt and uncle and my cousins and my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Like we were not, I was not allowed, I'm an only child, but like I was not allowed out on Friday nights. And on Saturdays I went with my mom Usually my dad was often working, but I went with my mom to synagogue every wow. every Shabbat morning. And like I was a Torah reader at AJ. Like I, you know, cool. made my whole bat mitzvah portion and after <laughs> high school, did you think to yourself you wanted to be in Jewish community work or how did no, you end up so, in that? No, definitely not. So I like after I finished high school, I went to NYU and then I went and like traveled and lived in Israel and did a whole bunch of things. And eventually when I started to see like a path for myself to settle down. I actually came back to Philadelphia and went to Temple Law School mm. um, and it's like now Beasley School of Law. And I have, I, I got my JD in 1995 and then I got married and had kids and I became very involved in my own children's Jewish day schools. So that's sort of like where it kind of started for me is being really involved in my kids' day schools and seeing like what was working and what was not working and also just feeling really passionate about it. Like not just for my own children, but for the Jewish people. Like, you know, someone had just said this to me the other day and I said, you know, I'm going to use that, but you can't choose what you don't know, right? So I feel like Jewish children are like, they're entitled. It's their birthright to know all the stuff about, you know, all the things about what it means to be a Jew in the world. And then, you know, kind of like what you do with it, that's that's on you. That's your call. And there's a freedom there to do it or to not do it. I felt that way very much with my own children. Like I wanted to raise my children in a very observant, in quotes, religious home. I wanted to give them everything, like all of it. And I can honestly say that I had an openness to the fact that maybe not all my children would choose it. But that would be okay because they would be coming from a place of knowledge and choice, but choosing or not choosing something that they actually knew, that they were actually immersed in. You know, and then people have to make their own choices in life. So that's kind of what it was for me. So did but you I- have any profession, like when you finished law school, 
Did you start out as a lawyer or was your yeah. first job? Yeah. So you were working as a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, I didn't work for like a firm. I, I had young children. So I hung up a shingle and I, I did a lot of like family law, which is an oxymoron. It's like unfamily law. <laughs> And and support and all those things. And I did that because it was an area of law that was like very sympathetic to a mom with small children, meaning there weren't like, I wasn't going to ever blow a statute of limitations. And then, you know, someone's lawsuit is just completely over. Like you can't run a statute and lose the right to custody of your children type of situation. Okay, cool. But yeah, I practiced for like 15 years. Oh, wow. Oh, that's yeah. not a short time at all. No, I practiced for a long time. Yeah. And then what, how'd you get into Jewish community work? So I was very involved in my children's schools. Like I was on the board of um, one of the schools and very active. I was actually even on the, I guess, like the executive board of the school for quite some time. And I think I just started to see, again, like what was working and what was not working and felt like I was open to kind of bringing new ideas into the school and I noticed that schools are really complicated institutions with a lot of levels, you know, like a lot of levels going on. Like there's your board and your administration and the operations and then like the kids and the parents and the teachers, just like many pieces going on. And it's really hard to affect change there. But I was I was very passionate about it. And then, you know, like some years in to that whole kind of journey with my own children, there was a person who had moved to the neighborhood in Philadelphia a few years before who was very interested in giving money to Jewish day schools. And I encountered him a little bit through the school that I was most involved in, which was Torah Academy at the time. And a mutual friend said to him, hey, you know, it seems like maybe you want to get like pretty organized about all this charitable giving that you're doing. I have a friend who's really passionate about Jewish day schools Mm. and, you know, and she's like smart and capable. She's a lawyer. You know, maybe you want to talk to her about helping you with the foundation and that conversation like sort of morphed into me going to work with David Magerman, who was the prime, like the, the donor and the president of the Kohelet foundation and um, and I worked with him at the Kohala Foundation for 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, and for 10 years, the work that we did at the Kohala Foundation was focused on Jewish day schools in North America, primarily. And it was really all about looking at Jewish day schools and seeing, again, like what was working and what was not working. And I think, you know, the, the initial driving question was, why aren't there way more kids in Jewish day school? Like, what is going on here? Why aren't way more kids sending their kids to Jewish day school? And from that, I think we sort of got into this inquiry, exploration of, you know, well, what is going on in Jewish day school? And, and, you know, is it that the schools are lacking something? Is it just a tuition issue? Is it that there isn't enough marketing around Jewish day schools? Are the programs really not good? Like, what is going on here? And we spent, you know, number a number of years working on all different types of projects and programs and initiatives to really dig into Jewish day schools and see what we could do to make them better, to make them more effective, and to make them more attractive to Jewish the Jewish families that were not sending their kids. Wow. We did all different kinds of things. Like we had a program where we created learn a learning initiative for the parents of children in Jewish day school. And if they participated consistently in the learning program, there were two different learning tracks. If they participated consistently over the course of the, a year of the year, then the foundation would make a contribution to their child's school. And then that contribution would be credited to that family as a tuition credit. So basically like parents learning Torah to get tuition credit for their children in school. That was called the Kohelet Fellowships Program. It was, mm. I thought it was an incredible program. And, you know, we did something else where we had, back in the day, we got iPads for all of the students in all of the Jewish day schools who wanted them from fifth grade through 12th grade in the entire Philadelphia area. I think it was wow. like nine or 11 schools at the time. Wow. But you know what? You Very would ambitious. think it was like 5,000 iPads, but it wasn't because at the time there were only like less than 2,000 kids in Jewish day school in really? all of Philadelphia. So it's like 
that's sort of the uh-huh moment, right? Well, let me take a step back for a second. Like if you if you came to me and you said, I'm just thinking out loud, you said, listen, I have a donor, or I am a donor, and I really want to impact those not in the day schools, which is a very different problem than making yeah. the schools better. I mean, it's related, but it's different. I would think the place to start is with some serious research, like hiring the the best research firm to go out there and interview however they do the research. We did a similar audit here in Houston. I know a lot of communities do it. The Jewish Federation hired someone in Florida, I forgot his name, who does this specifically for a Jewish, like a census almost, and really dig into through focus groups, through surveys. I don't know. What are the issues? I assume it's financial, but... Did you guys um, do any of that? Like, we, it sounds like you're just sort of like, let's try this. Let's try yeah, that. We did, like, yeah, we didn't actually do that. Um, I guess maybe that was that that could have maybe been a really smart thing to do. But we didn't do that. So it was just what you well, thought, like sitting around the dining room table. Like, yeah, I think that one of the things that that really started to show up for us as we looked into the schools ourselves and thought about the experiences that we had had that many of our friends had had with their children is that like great schools attract people, you know, like in Philadelphia in particular, let's say there's a really strong tradition of Quaker schools. And the statistic in Philadelphia is something like, but don't hold me to this, but it's something like, like around 50% or maybe a little more or a little less of the kids in the Quaker schools in the Philadelphia area are Jewish. Like the Quaker schools advertise in our local Jewish newspaper, the Jewish exponents. They, they, they make ads that say things like, you know, we really respect tradition. And they have a picture of a guy with a beard. (laughs) Like it's, I think, I guess just for us, part of the idea was there are a lot of people out there who like money is not even the issue. It's just not on their radar. They don't think the schools are good enough. How do we, how do we make that better? But you do raise an interesting issue that, you know, we did not, we did not actually do that. I know you put a lot of energy into a school called the Kohelet School, right? Yeah. So what happened was after like five or so years of all these different projects and programs and initiatives to make the schools better, and it was sort of like, you know, trying to steer a ship. It was really hard <laughs> to affect this type of change. I just remember saying to David, like, you know, I think maybe we just need to make a new school. You know, I think maybe we need to sort of take a lot of this stuff that we've learned and a lot of the stuff that we know, I mean, we actually know a lot in the world about how, how children learn. And very few of our schools, not just Jewish schools, like schools in general, actually teach children based on the way children learn. We, we actually we actually in our schools teach more based on a, a model that came in to favor post-industrial revolution when there were like lots of kids and people invented conveyor belts. And, you know, it was sort of like, get as many kids as you can in a row, get one teacher in front of them and then go ahead and teach. And I just said to him, like, you know, what if we just kind of built the possible school? Like, it's so hard to get schools to change because you give them a lot of money or because we say this would be better for your students. But if we created something where they could actually see the change, then a model and, you know, maybe that would also be a way to inspire schools to change things up a bit. So we, so that's how we, that was sort of the genesis of how David and I thought to create the Yeshiva Lab School. I yeah. can't help but to think of the Chazal that it says, Kina Sofrim Tarbachachma, that jealousy amongst educators enhances wisdom. That the model of sort of looking over your shoulder at what, what that other school is doing to be an impetus for your own growth is, is a Chazal, you know, it's a rabbinic. Uh... That's, no, that's really nice that you said, like, I definitely hope, and like, I for sure, in my mind, the jealousy was not like in play in my mind. I was much more thinking like, it's so hard for them to even imagine what could be different in their schools. And the road to get there is so, is so arduous. But if we made it and they could actually see, then there would be inspiration. And like that, so I think I had a, like, hopefully I think I had a much more positive take yeah, on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Jealousy is, oh yes, that's the yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean, it definitely caused a stir in the community of Lower Marion when we said, oh, we're opening another elementary school. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the, the crowd went wild. <laughs> but um, I will say that, you know, subsequent to that, the community has grown immensely because there really are like different flavors here and choices. Right. And 
can be almost, you can be all different things and have, you can have like one family with five kids and be sending them to three or four different schools if that's what the needs of your family are. So, so I, I, I had the uh, great blessing of interviewing uh, Gil Pearl in season yeah. one. So please yeah. take a look for all of my listeners. Yeah. And uh, he was the founding was principal our, and he was our guy, sort of he the visionary of it. And I asked him a funny question and, and I, you know, I, I'm not expect a more of an answer from you than, than from him, but it was sort of like in retrospect, how do you measure if it was a successful venture? Mm-hmm. Are there any metrics? Are there any ways to know? And you could listen back to hear his answer, but it wasn't, it was not uh, easily measured or, you know, you didn't have a, a really simple answer for that. I mean, listen, it's um so personal, right? But I will say the school is full. Like that elementary school is full. And I will say that as a result of it, the community has definitely grown. And um, there are people that would come to the Philadelphia area for medical school, their residency or law school. And then, you know, as soon as they were done, they would pack their things and go to back to New York or it's like Houston, you know, something like. And now a lot of people stay. So the school is full. I mean, in terms of educational methodology, does this model provide a better, whatever that means, education? So the problem is, and this is what he pointed out, is that a lot of the metrics we use, like SAT scores, college admissions, um, that type of thing, standardized testing, is not reflective of the goals of the school per se, which are more creativity, love of learning, passion. So it is hard to measure. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, listen, I think you want your kids, you want, we all want our kids to go to these schools and come out with like a high level of Jewish literacy. And we want them to love being Jewish. And we want them to be able to go on to the, like whatever's next for them, whether it's a yeshiva or the college of their choice. Listen, it's also hard to measure because, because schools are things that take time, you know, like the kids who were the very first class of the yeshiva lab school, now the Kohel yeshiva lab school are just now, I think, in seventh or eighth grade. So it's a little tricky to know. You have to see kind of like what happens with them. But listen. And there's so many factors that'll play into what happens in their lives. I mean, yeah, so but much goes into that. I do think that, you know, I, I, listen, I, Gil is, he's an educator, you know, like his, that's, that's more his training and his life experience, like being ahead of school and leading educational teams. So if he says it's too complicated to say, you know, I'm not going to step on his toes and and say anything different. Like I'm going to fully respect that. But I would say that, you know, parents know what's going on with their kids and parents can kind of vote with their feet. And that school is full of kids and they have choices. They do not have to be there. There are, there are at least four or five other choices of schools where they could send their elementary school children and it's full. And the kids are learning. The kids are happy. The kids can read. The kids can write. Again, like for me, I'm I, I'm hoping that the kids are coming out with a love of Hashem and a love of Torah and a love of being Jewish. And I think that they are in that school. That was something that we really put in. But again, like you said, that's the kind of thing that you also find out some of that stuff a bit later. It's really hard to measure. It's, 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 it's difficult to measure. That. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. So how do we get to Tumman Academy? Around 2019, I think David was really starting to feel like his work at the Kohala Foundation was coming to a, like a, a good place for closure. And he felt really, when we created the lab school, we didn't just make the lab school. We sort of started it standalone. And then we actually merged it into Kohelet Yeshiva High School. And it became that that whole thing. And we built a, an elementary school building on the campus and it became a full K through 12. So I think David felt, and, you know, really rightfully so, like, like he had really accomplished something major. He had had, you know, incredible impact across the Jewish day school world for a number of years, which culminated in this really magnificent school that was different, like in, in very positive ways. And, and I think that he sort of felt like that whole kind of era was coming to a close. And we had talked uh, for like many, many years, many times over the years of this idea of trying to create a network of schools. And we had actually tried to create a network of schools by 
taking schools that already existed and building a network around them, but not, I would say like, not so successfully, you know, that was, again, that was like very difficult because everyone was so different. And there was a lot of like, there was just competing and it was, it was hard. And we had this idea of like, I think one of the big things that we learned with the Kohali Yeshiva Lab School was that when you start from scratch, so many more things are possible. You know, when you have a white box and then you can just put it, put in the way you want, put, put the things in the way you want and create the school you want instead of having to retrain teachers and redo processes, but to just sort of start fresh. I think we saw that there was tremendous possibility there. And so we had this idea that we would start a network of schools from scratch. And, and I guess like, you know, the idea of working with Chabad came more from me, but like when I look out at the world, I'm, I'm Lubavitch in my own home and in my own customs and my own ways, but not because of that, I think, but because of that, I had a lot of exposure to the Chabad world. And we had done a lot of programs over the years, like the Kohelet Fellowships Program with different Chabads and organizations that are affiliated with Chabad. And I would say to the Shulchan and the Shulchan all the time, like, I don't understand, you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent you guys all out to like, God only knows where in the world. And he had 10 campaigns, 10 campaigns. And he always was very clear that top two, the two most important campaigns upon which all the other campaigns were built were loving each other, you know, loving, loving, loving every Jew, loving, just being loving and being kind. And the other one was education. Where are your schools? I would say to them, where are the schools? And they would just kept telling me things like we would love to open a school, but preschools, no problem. Hebrew schools, no problem. But elementary schools, it's like a whole other that's a whole other thing. You have to have rules and regulations and you have to make sure you're teaching them how to read and write. And like, it's, if someone would hand it to us on a silver platter, we would for sure open schools, they would say. But um, we once had a conference here in Philadelphia and that was like the big takeaway. Like if you hand them a on a silver platter, they'll be happy to open schools for you. And then, um, but that really got me thinking like, you know, who is out there? Who is everywhere? And they have somewhere between 300 and 500 preschools around North America. No one knows the exact number because nobody is keeping track. Like nobody has, like nobody knows, no one reports. And in those preschools are a nice chunk of those 1.3 million Jewish children who do not go to Jewish day school. They're in those Chabad preschools. So the idea was like, well, take a group of people that already have a network, right? And just leverage them to do what they actually already want to do. Amazing. And they actually have a natural pipeline of students that would be able to go into the schools also. So it was kind of like, you know, it was sort of strategic. They have ultimate Masirat Nefesh. They are completely mission-driven people. And you really have to be that way to run a school because running a school is so hard. And so that's kind of like the genesis of that. And um, David was very, like, very supportive and provided seed funding along with another donor. And off, off we went. Wow. That's yeah. a great idea. I'd love to hear a little more. Let's talk about what do you look for? What does it take to become part of your network? I mean, I wouldn't say that we're excellent. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't say that we're expert at it yet. Okay. Um, we've been at it for like about like less than four years. We've opened 12 schools so wow. far. That's amazing. Um, How yeah, many students some, are reflected in those 12 schools? Right. So some, I was saying some of the schools are really small. Let me just, I'll explain to you what we, what, the way we do it is basically okay. we look for Chabad houses that have a thriving preschool and an interest in keeping those kids and opening an elementary school, like as a sort of extension of the preschool. And, you know, we do a lot of, like, we do a site visit, we meet the shluchim, and we look at the physical plant. We, you know, sort of assess them from a financial standpoint, like, is this something that they can tolerate? Do they have, like, the, just, like, the personality to do it? Do they seem like they have the wherewithal? And then we start each year when we start new schools, we start with, like, a kindergarten or maybe a kindergarten and a first grade mix, and then they build from there. So our, we have one school where the oldest kids are in fifth grade, but it's really just two kids because they were sort of an early 
combined K-1 mm. that had like two older kids in it. So we have like probably around 300 kids in the network so far. Some of our schools are really small. Like they have six kids or 14 kids in them. It's a K or a K-1. And there's a lot of room for growth. And then some of our schools are popping. Like we have a school in Miami that's, it's a K-1, but it's full. And we wow. have a school in Boca that's a K-4 and it's full. And I'll say full, like, I just want to also say the the model of our school is our schools are not meant to become like 300 and 400 kids schools. Our model is to like, for like a moderate size, at the most a moderate size school with the idea that, you know, if you're in an area where there are so many kids that you could have 300 kids in your school, maybe you should actually have two schools there and like two shluchim should be opening schools. So part of the model is that the schools are not going to be that huge. What do you provide the schools? Meaning you, you said you'd come on a silver platter. What does yeah. that include? So, What's okay, the so, box? So we basically give them everything. Like it's, I mean, I, I use this as an example and it's probably not really a good example, but you know, it's like when you walk into a Starbucks, you know that you're in a Starbucks at every level of your experience, right? Um, you know, like, the way the servers talk to you, the way the servers are dressed, the way the merchandise is set up, the way the coffee tastes, the way the... the way even the, the furniture has a certain Starbucks feel, the bathroom, the yeah, colors. The everything, right? right? And so I think that that's sort of how we, um, like that's how we are trying to build these Tamim Academies as like a real brand that if you walk into one and you walk into the Tamim in Burlington, it doesn't feel so different than the Tamim in Boca, except in Burlington, they visit the farm and they go skiing once a week. And like, obviously they don't go skiing in Boca, right? That model sort of exists with charter schools. Like we have KIPP or Yes yeah. Prep. I don't know what yeah. you have over there, but in yeah. Texas we have a whole bunch of those and yeah. they have that vibe, you know, similar. Yeah, that, you know, that's very true. And actually early on, um, I did a bunch of, like I did a, a lot of work with someone who was involved in the founding of KIPP schools who like helped us as a consultant. So yeah, that's actually true. Okay. So I was asking what you, what you give. So you give, give, is it curriculum or I mean, obviously curriculum, but so we, so right. So that was leading into, we give everything. So basically we have like a 300 plus page digital document, which is our operations guide, um, probably similar to like a franchise agreement guide. And it, it delineates everything from how many teachers per number of students, what the classroom is supposed to look like. Uh, And then we provide all of the curriculum, like down to the lesson plan, Um, like literally down to the lesson plan. We do all the professional development, teacher onboarding, teacher training, ongoing coaching. We have cameras in the classrooms because we're uh, a headquarters, we're an HQ, and we're sort of based in Philadelphia and New York, and our schools are all over the country. So in order to really be able to coach and provide mentoring, we need to be able to see what's going on in the classrooms. Wow. So we provide everything. We also provide, I'm not going to speak specific numbers, but like we also provide a financial grant that goes along with this um, that's, that's delivered over the course of about three to four years, which is Definitely not enough money to run a school, but it's enough money to make, I think, to make our partners on the ground feel like we a bit have your back. Like we expect a lot of you and we know it's going to be expensive. So, you know, here's some assistance to make sure that you can do the things that we need you to do and a little bit more. Are the people employees Um, of you or are they employees of a local entity? They're employees of the local entity. Yeah, they're employees of the local entity. uh, Run the books or that kind of thing. We don't run the books, but we see all the books. We we are we are involved not only at the educational level, but we're involved at the operations level as well, which includes the finances. So we do we do get financial reports from the schools like three times a year. I mean, it's important, right? Like we need to be able to look at a school and say to them, you know, you're you're gonna have six kids in this class, you don't need two teachers, right? Or you're gonna have 16 kids in this class, we recommend that you have two and a half teachers. Here's how we suggest you do it. And I think that this is one of the, the, the and, and by the way, we have not perfected this yet. Okay. We're not like, I think we're sort of experts at it, but actually making it happen on the ground is a bit more challenging. 
But I think the fact that we're in those weeds with the schools really matters because I think it's it's one of the areas where schools really get into trouble and, and they end up with these budgets that are like so out of control after five years, 10 years, 15 years, because, you know, once you hired all these teachers, you can't fire the teachers and then you make this teacher a specialist in this and then this teacher a specialist. Like you have to run a school like you would run in some ways, like you would run any other business, right? Like you can't have way more staff than you need, or it's just going to kill your business. And you can't have, you need to have enough customers or it's going to ruin your business. And so we try and really, we try and really be involved with the schools in all of these areas so that we're able to advise them and coach them in the best direction. That's great. How about like operational policies? Like for example, the uniform is or um, abuse prevention policies. Like do you, do you like drill into all those things? That's all in our operations guide. Like we, we understand that schools need to have all of those types of policies in place. So actually our schools do have uniforms and we set the, the uniform policy at the HQ level, but all those other things you're talking about, like, you know, health and safety and abuse policies and, and things like that. We, we do set policies like that. And then we, of course, understand that sometimes those things have local ramifications or, or local right. influences. So we figure out what those are like for each school yeah. in their state and in their city. And I mean, we also like require schools to follow the law, <laughs> you know, like that is part of being a, right. I mean, our, our operations guide is a really, I would almost say like it's a really scary, very comprehensive document. I could show it to you like another time, but did you write it primarily? We at HQ wrote it. Yeah. Wow. We, I mean, we how had, big is your team at HQ? I thought it was just you. It sounds like no, no, no. our team at HQ is. Um, we're. I mean, it's really small. It's. <laughs> it's. I am the CEO, and we have um, a chief impact officer. Her name is Bryna Leader. You might have heard of her. She's pretty popular in the Jewish day school world. She was the founding principal of Luria Academy in Brooklyn. I've heard of that. Um, she's a genius. And then we have Rebecca Goldberg. She and I were together for many years at the Kohelet Foundation and she really handles like operations. And then we have consultants that we hire for things like curriculum writing and, and that. And with regard to the Lubavitch identity or Chabad identity, how would you know it's a Lubavitch school? What are the things that make it Lubavitch? So like, I actually wanted to tell you a little bit about, there's a lot of love in the school. There's a lot of love. And there's also, um, and this was by design, and we really built the curriculum this way. I hope it's in the handbook. You must love children. Yeah, you have to, no, there's a lot <laughs> One of second, love. one second, I'm violating page seven. One second. Lots oh. of love. Okay, so I think that I, I, in my own sort of like progression, so kind of where I am today and the way I believe today, I was very influenced by learning Chabad Hasidus and um, this idea that like there's a spark in everything and that, you know, we as humans with a soul were put here by Hashem because there was something that like that the world you like needs us to do uniquely, each one of us. Okay. And I, so that is a very, and again, that's a Jewish concept. But I think that's sort of like really driving it home also is like a very Chabad, Hasidu type of, of idea. And so just in general, I think one of the things that has always bothered me about Jewish day schools in general is how we just, they're also bifurcated between general studies and Judaic studies. And you always, everyone always wants to know, like, what's your percentage? Are you 60, 40? Are you 50, 50? Are you 80, 20? And, and, and then like these kids grow up after 13 years of Jewish day school and they go to college and then they just like walk away from the Jewish part. Right. And everyone's like shocked. Oh my God, 13 years in Jewish day school. How did that happen? And I think to myself, like, what are you joking? Like you separated the secular world from the Jewish world. You taught them for 13 years that one thing had nothing to do with the other. And then they make that choice that you put in front of them. And somehow we're surprised. Mm. Like that's just insane actually. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Like it's just insane to not understand how that happened because it's so plain. Right. So I think for me, one of the things, one of like the marks of a tummy Academy is that being a Jew in the world is a part of everything that we do. 
Like that is how we need to interact with the world. And that needs to be taught. That is not something, yes, it's intrinsic because we have our souls, right? But how we express that in the world, especially in a world that we live in like today, where everything is just so, just the way it is, okay? <laughs> um, being in quotes, holy is, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be holy? And so I think that is something that we are really teaching them. And the idea that it permeates every part of them, I feel like that comes a lot from the Chabad Hasidut. So, and I'll just, can I give you an example? Just like, yeah, sure. like, I'm just like, for what it's worth, we have a, in our school, every, every year, each grade has like a theme, you know, a theme of the year. And from that theme, we draw essential questions. So let's say in maybe it's first grade or second grade, the theme is things you cannot see. So that has a great application. Let's say in science, we can learn about forces and, you know, different things in like elementary physics and push and pull. And, and then, you know, you can also learn about science, like, like weather and wind and things, right? But also we cannot see Hashem. But in science, we learn that there are indications of what the wind does or what happens when you push or pull on a force on something or radio waves that you can't see, but you can hear. And so too with Hashem, right? Like, and I think just making it all, making it all connect, like, again, everything is connected. So I think that's something that we do in our school that's really, our schools that are really, is really unique is that we are pulling these like threads of what does it mean to be a Jew in the world? And what are the things we think about as Jews in the world? And how does that relate to, you know, when I'm learning social studies, like, or when I'm learning science or, you know, other things. So that's something that I think is very, I think that's very unique. And, and by the way, I also want to say that it is very much a privilege to be able to create a school from nothing, right? Let's create a school from scratch. Like I'm sure there are lots of schools that have ideas like this where we they wish they could be putting this into their curriculum. And it is hard to backtrack this kind of thing into existing curricula. So I'm not saying that like we're the only people that care about this. We're the only schools that care about this. I know that lots of schools care about it, but we have had the good fortune of being able to build a school around these concepts, which other schools have not had the ability to do. One of the challenges that comes to my mind living in Houston is staffing with people who are able to impart that message in a way that would make our parents comfortable. Like, you know, I tell teachers that I hire who are not part of our culture, like stay away from religion, stay away from politics, stay away from any um, entertainment stuff, like try to keep it, you know, on subject. Yeah. So in order for this type of thing to work, you really need teachers who could cross both sides of of the education and that yeah. requires a certain population that you could just pull from. Now, I imagine that you have some schools in places that don't have a robust uh, faculty options in terms yeah. of Judaics. So how do you address that? Well, so, you know, you've heard of the teacher shortage. So there really is a teacher shortage. Um, and I think that that affects all schools, not just Jewish schools, by the way, there's the teacher shortage, shortage sure. writ large. So yeah, it absolutely affects us also, you know, in a perfect world, like in our dream world, in our ideal school, we would actually be able to find people. And we do have this in a few of our schools, actually, where there is one person teaching the K-1 class who is actually a qualified Limu Day Kodesh and general yeah, well, studies teacher. And yeah. like, they are teaching it all together. But in the absence of that, I mean, we do require that our teachers have, you know, like proper, like are properly educated and, you know, able to teach. So in the absence of having those types of very rare people that can teach both, our HQ model and the way we train and the way we provide lessons and our coaching and our mentoring is, is definitely touches on that. So there is a lot of time that is provided for teachers in both subjects to work together and to fully understand what each of them is teaching and how that particular subject relates to the other subject and to actually talk about how to pull those threads through in both directions. So I was visiting um, Tamim in Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont last week, 
And I went to the morning circle of the, it was the K1 class, and or maybe it was just the K class. And, you know, at the morning meeting where they're all sitting in a circle, the general studies teacher and the Jewish studies teacher were both in the circle at the same time. And there was a lot of dialogue between them so that when one person would say one thing, the other person would say something complimentary and back and forth. And so I think that it is something that has to really be intentional and curated to some degree. It doesn't always come naturally, but that is something that I think at the HQ level, the way we build the curricula for for the schools, each you know, in each subject, we show the interdisciplinary nature and we show the, you know, we actually call it out and we say like, if you're teaching this subject in science, you should know that at the same time, in general studies, they're learning this. Here are some themes that you should also be bringing in or make sure that the that the Jewish studies teacher is comes to the classroom while you're doing this lesson and can give the complimentary piece of it. So we really, really do a lot of that with intention. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'm wondering, are you guys affiliated with Chabad International or any like national, you're like your own Chabad entity? Yeah, we're not actually a Chabad entity. We're just Tamim Academy. <laughs> And um, we're our own 501c3. So we're not, no, we're not, we don't fall under like the umbrella of any other kind of larger Chabad entity. I mean, we're very in, much in communication and they know what we're doing. And, you know, they have working, a lot of schools and they have a lot of infrastructure. Yeah. Right? And, we're, and yeah, I mean, like we work with, but we're not, we're not officially them. Yeah. I mean, they do have a lot of schools, but they don't have so many schools that are really catering to these kids. Interesting. Um, they're a handful, but okay. It's interesting. I feel like you know, in back in the 1950s, Torah and Torah Masora was sort of doing what Tamim Academy is doing today, right? Like they said, "Wait, there are all these kids in public school. Why are they in public school? Let's go get them from right. public school and give them a Jewish education." Right. Sure. And, you know. Here we are 70 years later, and basically all of those schools morphed into like like religious schools that religious kids go to. So it's kind of like a restarting of the whole like, wait, look at all those kids in public school. Like, let's go get them. And that's what right. we're talking about. Do you find a saving of money because of the scale, you know, bringing together different schools that maybe that model could be used elsewhere? Just that part of it. Is there any financial savings in the operations of these schools? It's a really good question. It's a kind of a hard question. I'll say it like this. I think that because the HQ has undertaken to do all the things like research and development and curating curriculum and writing curriculum and all the teacher training and those types of things, those are the things that normally schools have to pay for themselves because um, there is no like HQ somewhere that's doing its own fundraising to provide those services for the schools for free. And then what ends up happening is those are the areas where schools sort of start to cut corners because they're the kind of things that like you don't miss right away. It takes a few years for the impact of like not enough professional development or curating of curriculum to kind of show its effects. So I wouldn't say that we're like, like, I mean, there are definitely economies of scale, but it's more in the way that our hope is, and again, we don't know because this is new, our hope is that we're going to be able to help schools maintain like a very high quality and high level of education ongoingly without the, like, without the temptation of cutting these type of things because we're going to keep providing it and that that is going to ultimately save schools money and keep schools high quality because that stuff is coming to them, you know, without any, without any cost. What are your biggest challenges? What do you see as like the, the hardest nuts to crack in this process? It's, it's really hard to find teachers. Finding teachers is really, really difficult. Is, is um, it not a matter of pay of raising, of, of paying I better? I don't even think it's a matter of pay. I think it's a matter of just really finding people who want to do this with their lives, finding qualified teachers. I mean, I would say that our kind of remedy for the teacher shortage is that like we would say that because at Tamim, the level of like 
onboarding and training and coaching, plus the fact that we provide curriculum down to the lesson plan level, that we can hopefully take people that are not like natural teachers, but have other natural talents toward teaching. And we can make a good teacher, a great teacher, and we can make someone like an okay teacher into a good teacher because of all of the things that we're able to sort of like prop them up with and teach them and and provide for them. But I think, you know, finding good teachers is really, really hard these days. And I think the other thing that like just for us as a, you know, as a personal challenge is just getting these kids to like getting parents to take to take that flyer and say like, okay, I'll do it. I'm going to send my kid. Let me just let me just give it a go. You know, it's always like a it's there's always that also. Yeah. Sure. Especially in the populations that you're reaching out to. Yeah. You're trying to you're trying to change a trend yeah. and that's always that always takes time and in your dream and your vision does this go through 12th grade? Is this 150 schools all over the country, all over the world? How yeah. far have you visioned this? I mean, in my like in my my big audacious yeah that dream. yeah like big fat audacious dream yeah let it out let like, it out here yeah, like every single chabad house that wants to have an elementary school has an elementary school what about high school why are you giving up on high school okay so i'm not giving up on high school Good. But, but i'm not giving up on high school but i will say that i think at this point in time high school has so many other i think it's harder because there's like so many other things that are attendant to high school. Like these are kids that are going, these are college bound kids and making sure that they have all the things that they need to make sure that they're able to get into the right college. I mean, do I think it's doable? I certainly think it's doable. Where are the kids going to go in Vermont? I forgot the city you mentioned. Yeah, I know. Where are they going to go in eighth grade? I mean, they're going to have to go to high school. You know what? Don't make me cry. No, you're going to open a high school. I, yeah. I Not mean, in high school. You're going to figure it I, out. That's I like it. to, I like to think that when the need, someone had just said to me in Vermont, cause these kids are in fifth grade, they're like, Oh my God, soon you're going right, to have to figure out go. what to do for high school. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, mm. no, I think that it's, it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had. And it probably needs to be had like in the next year or so. I don't know that it's going to be like Tamim because I, I see Tamim. I see our mission as building, you know, more and more and more elementary schools. But what I will say is that, you know, anyone who's interested in having the conversation about high school, I would be happy to be on your team and um, be a part of that conversation. But they're, they're really two different things, elementary schools and high schools. Well, I could say that my experience with the many amazing Chabad people that I know in the Shluchim that I work with here, they are people of vision. They are people of passion, and they are not people who back down from a challenge for Claudius. Yeah. <laughs> if you're willing to, you know, the things that they do, there's got to be a Chabad person out there, at least, if not uh, multiple, that are ready for this. Yeah, and you know what? I want that person to call me and, yeah. and like, start thinking with me, and I'm super happy to be on that team. And okay. in the meantime, I'll be, and in the meantime, I'll be leading the charge to get all the children in elementary school who will want to go to their high school. Love it. All right. As we conclude, is there anything else that you want to mention that you feel that would be important that people would hear about Tamim um, that we didn't cover? I think that there could be a Tamim Academy, like basically everywhere. You know, I think that the Lubavitcher Rebbe had this idea that like wherever there are Jews, there should be Shluchim because Jews should have access to like the fullness and the richness of, you know, a Jewish life. And I think that Honestly, like, you know, show me a thriving Jewish community that doesn't have a school and it's in its center and in its heart. And I don't like, you know, that's a rhetorical challenge. Um, so I think that I want people to want to have schools in their communities and, you know, we can open a school. We can basically open a school like anywhere, anytime. We're really, we're like a fairly well-oiled machine at this point. I love it. And every Jewish community that wants to have like a high quality authentically Jewish elementary school can have one now because we can make it happen there. I love it. And how do people find out more, reach out all the listeners who are going to be bombarding you with their interest and ideas. Just go to our website, tummyamacademy.org. And there are um, ways to contact us. And there's a, 
a tab that says, you know, inquire about a school or open a school near you, something like that. Awesome. So you can, I mean, I'm at, you can, anyone can find me. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, this was great. I think what you're doing is really special. It's inspiring, frankly, and uh, you're machai of all of us. You make us all, you know, have to own this problem. We have to care about all the Jewish people, the 1.3 yeah, million. And yeah. It's really inspiring. So keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Wonderful. So there you have it. I wonder when was the last time that you or I thought about the 1.3 million Jewish children not in Jewish day schools? Has it been since the times of Rav Shraga Mendelovich in the early days of Torah Masora that a major focus has been on those not in our schools? You know, part of me feels like, well, I hear that, but we're so busy catching our breath with our schools that the thought of expanding our network beyond that is uh, overwhelming. But I wonder about all of those organizations that are featured in our Mishpacha and Hamodia and Yated magazines, and wonder if perhaps there is room in our Jewish philanthropic landscape to bring this agenda piece back like Holly Cohen is doing. Regardless, it is an amazing thing to hear about and to think about and to see how far she's come in just a few years to have so many schools and so many children and her enthusiasm and passion towards the Jewish people and Jewish education and really trying to address a need that exists. So I hope you enjoyed getting to know her. I hope it inspires some thought and even better would be some action. And any of our amazing Chabad Shluchim who are listening, who are looking for a great project, we got one for you. Don't shy away. Step up. Reach out to Tamimim Academy and get ready to open a high school to be the complimentary work to what she is doing. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and listening. As you all know, sharing is caring. So please make sure to share our podcast with someone who you think might enjoy it. And thank you all for joining us. This is Rachmiel Garfield wishing you a wonderful day.